Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, Professor of History at Brookdale Community College. Today we'll be discussing a new book by Nicole Evelina titled America's Forgotten Suffragist, Virginia and Francis Minor, published by Two Dot, an imprint of Globe Pequot, the trade division of Roman and Littlefield Publishing Group. Nicole Evelina is a USA Today best-selling author of historical fiction, nonfiction, and women's fiction. Her books have won over 50 awards, including four Book of the Year designations. She was named Missouri's top independent author by Library Journal as the winner of Missouri Indie Author Project and has been awarded the North Street Book Prize and the Sarton Women's Book Award. Nicole, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I appreciate you having me here. So what drew you to the story of Virginia and Francis Minor? I actually found out about Virginia when I was researching another book. Um, I have a historical fiction book on Victoria Woodhull, who was the first woman who ran for president in the U.S. in 1872. And in the course of trying to figure out how Victoria found the contents of her famous memorial before the House Judiciary Committee, I found out that she didn't come up with the idea that the 14th Amendment already gave women the right to vote. It actually came from Virginia and Francis Minor. So for the purposes of that book, that was really all I needed. But for some reason, the character of Virginia or the person of Virginia would not get out of my head. She was like in the back of my mind. And so I started thinking, okay, let me see what I can find out about this woman. And I came to find that she was really interesting, but there was no biography of her written, um, really only short profiles that mostly focused on their Supreme Court case, not the rest of their lives. And I knew that, you know, nobody lives their life in isolation with just one moment. You know, there's so much that leads up to it and comes after it. I wanted to find out what that was. So I, I just started digging and, and it came from there. Oh, so can you talk a little bit about the research journey? Because you, you know, it's really well researched. The the notes are fantastic. And I was really impressed with the depth of the research that you did for this book. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure there were some challenges, some obstacles. And can you share a little bit about that? Definitely. Yeah. Thank you. I, I appreciate the compliment. Um, I am very lucky that at the time that I was researching this, I was living in St. Louis, Missouri, which was their hometown. So our uh, historical society had a lot of information. That was really where I started. Um, Francis's uh, war claims books from the Civil War are there, all nine volumes of them in his own handwriting, which was really cool. Um, we have um, a dissertation that was at Washington University in St. Louis that was a really great foundational document. It was written, I think, back in the 60s. And um, then I was um, fortunate to be able to go to the University of Virginia and um, go to their special collections, which is where a lot of the miners' uh, papers and letters and their family Bible, um, all of that stuff is kept. So I was able to see that. Was also very lucky that um, the university has a lot of information on um, early schools in the area. So that kind of helped me reconstruct to the best of my knowledge where Virginia might have gone to school. Um, you know, even Francis's um, college papers are preserved. And so I was able to contact uh, Princeton and, of course, University of Virginia and get his record. So um, very, very, very lucky. Um, and that was right before COVID hit. So it was the summer before. 
So the other part of the research, um, I actually just had to do online because everything was shut down at that point. But our libraries and um, the, the research assistants and everyone that I spoke to was very, very understanding. They sent me what they could electronically. Um, I did a lot with the Missouri State Archives. Um, Pre-COVID, I was able to actually go view some of the uh, case files that um, were part of Francis's career, the ones that have been processed, because not everything has been. Unfortunately, there's not enough staff. But um, it was it was both an in-person and a virtual process. And um, I again, there were there was not one person that I reached out to that wasn't very kind and, and very willing to help. So I was very fortunate in that way. No, oh, that's terrific. You know, and that's I always think that um, that could be a book unto itself, right? How you find these people, because you know, it, it leads us to the next question about the title, America's Forgotten Suffragists. Mm -hmm. And so why did you think that the miners have been forgotten? You know, the uh, the story of suffrage, I think, you know, the 100th anniversary of suffrage kind of was disrupted because of COVID. I mean, I think there were a lot of things planned for that celebration, the centennial of suffrage. And um, the story of suffrage had you know, had become sort of fossilized, I think, yeah. in the American imagination that it's, you know, just these few women leaders and that's all you needed to know. But I think that you really open up a whole nother story. So can you talk a little bit about why you chose that title and why have they been forgotten? Yeah, I the very interesting thing is that minors were very, very well known during their lifetime. Um, they had newspaper coverage, which, of course, was the major media of the time across the country. Um, they spoke across the country. Uh, chances were good if you were in that circle or any other type of advocacy circle, you knew their name. But now the only thing we really remember is their Supreme Court case. And I mean, I'm grateful for that because they haven't been completely forgotten. But they were so much more. And I, I think some of that has to do with the fact that there is just so much to the suffrage movement, the breadth of it. I, I it seems like we tend to, for for ease of either teaching, learning, whatever, um, we tend to narrow it down to a handful of people. And, you know, those are the ones that you can name off the top of your head. Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth, Katie, Sam, Matilda, Jocelyn, Gage, Carrie, Chapman, Cat. Um, but that they were they were able to do what they did because of the thousands of people who were supporting them and doing things either at the local level or the national level. And it's it's just Unless you have the time and the um, interest to really d dig deeper, and there's so much else going on. There's so much else competing just in the realm of women's history, not to mention everything else um, in media. That it's it's just very easy for people to be forgotten. I don't. It's not just them. Yeah, and you know, the, it became the suffrage became the the biggest mass movement in American history yes. by the end. Yes. And to understand the movement, you have to understand how it grows. Definitely. How it becomes a mass movement. And so I think that, uh, you know, why do you think suffrage, is the story of the miners, is still important today? Oh, there are a ton of reasons. I mean, it, we could start with the, the biggest, at least in my mind, is we've been fighting for 100 years now for um, an equal rights amendment in the United States. Virginia helped move the needle toward women's suffrage, which was a good way toward female equality, but we're still not there. So it's still relevant. Um, the 14th Amendment and the way the decision in their court case was worded, 
um, is still used today. It's not particularly picking on the minors, but picking on the way the judge um, came out with his decision. It's used to justify all kinds of things from, um, you know, attempting poll taxes again and gerrymandering and, you know, things that um, a lot of people would consider injustices. Um, in regards to voting and what do the states have power does the states have versus the federal government that's the big crux um, that is still in flux nowadays um, that was a main part of the the miners argument when they went to the supreme court um, at the time um, people believed that the federal government was this big scary entity that was going to you know rob everybody of their rights and and i think that belief still persists to a certain extent and they believed that the states were going to protect them. And Francis argued that, you know, the states don't necessarily have your best interests in mind. If there was a a, a federal rule that kind of car- carpeted over everything, you know, as far as, as women's suffrage went, it would be better for everyone rather than having to go state by state by state because then there wouldn't be um, equality. And we still see that in issues today. Yeah, and you know, I, I imagine that the uh, that minor versus Haperstead is still being cited in a lot of these court cases about voting rights today, and there are so many, uh, like you mentioned, with gerrymandering, and the whole question of what is citizenship. Yes, it yeah. continues to be relevant. Definitely, yeah. Well, at the time of the case, um, there there was no definition of citizenship in the United States. Um, and there, the writer versus Happersat really helped. Um, it was the first time that anyone had declared women were citizens. Now, they were still considered a special class of citizen, which didn't end until the 19th Amendment. And quite frankly, after that, when all women later on, 50s, 60s, you know, finally were um, truly allowed to vote. But um, it, it's... It, it, it's amazing to me how many of the same questions that were going on in the minor's time are still being asked today or being redebated. Um, and citizenship for different groups, usually based on on race or religion or something like that, um, is very much still a part of our society. And I think that's part of the reason why this case is used is because it was tackling the same issues, whether it's used in a positive or, or negative way, you know, this up, up for opinion, of course. Of course. And you, you open the book with the story of the death of their son. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about why you chose to begin the book with that story? Sure. Um, Francis Minor was 14 years old when he, uh, this is Francis Minor Jr., Francis Gilmore Minor, to be specific. Um, he was 14 years old when he died. Um, it was a very tragic accident. He was out hunting and his um, gun jammed and he was attempting to get it unjammed. And when he did, he was bent over it and he was shot in the face. Um, Not only tragic, but brutal as well. Um, That was a very strong turning point in Virginia and Francis's lives. And that's why I started it there. Um, Because every story, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, has a turning point like that. All of our lives do. they They have several. Um, but that was really, I think, the thing that was the first impetus for Virginia to get into women's rights, women's suffrage, because her role in society at the time was wife and mother. And to have her son so tragically taken, it was her only child, um, taken from her, wiped out a huge part of her social identity. And um, 
right after that, we have the Civil War where she was able to be involved um, with helping on the home front. And um, she and a lot of other women experienced independence. They experienced getting business skills for the first time, organizational skills, and truly had um, the type of, of, of role or independence that they wouldn't have otherwise had. And when that was gone after the war was over, she didn't have anything else to do other than, you know, be Francis's wife, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But she was the type of person that had drive within her. And of course, because we don't have her journals, we don't know for sure, but she sure seems to have taken her grief and turned that, used it um, to focus on the fact that, okay, slaves are getting, are getting rights now. Why aren't women getting rights too? And that's kind of how all of these women's organizations started after the Civil War, including the Missouri Women's Suffrage Association. Yeah, that's the it's the thing in her life that changes everything. And uh, it's a really powerful opening and it really grabs the reader. So I I think it's a really great choice and, and also, you know, of course, analytically appropriate, but also really well written and uh, and really a grabber. So. Can you tell us a little bit about who the miners were? Like, where did they come yeah. from? What was their background? Sure. The miners both came from the state of Virginia. Um, they were actually second cousins. So uh, Virginia was specifically from the Charlottesville area. Um, Virgin- uh, sorry, Francis was um, just not not too far away. Um, at the time, the second cousins and cousins in general were considered part of main part of the family. Um, we know we consider them a little bit distant now, but it was a special relationship that was fostered. Um, a lot of times cousins came and stayed with family for lengthy periods of time, um, whether that was summer holidays, et cetera. Um, but they definitely stayed in touch throughout the year. So by letter, of course. Um, and it, it, so it's a very, very good chance that Virginia and Francis knew each other really well. Um, prior to, you know, even being old enough for courtship to be considered at all. Um, but we do know that the families, dis- the parts of the family decided that they would be good for each other. And, um, you know, they were put together. They're really, as far as we can tell, there was no question. Um, there's no records indicating that y- y- there were any competition for each other's hand. And they seemed to be perfectly happy, um, you know, being together. They were, they were just good for each other. Um, they had a type of marriage um, that's called a companion in marriage, which is really more a kind of a, what we would think of as a love match nowadays rather than an arranged, you know, contractual type of, of marriage. Um, in a companion in marriage, it was expected that both um, parties would have outside interests besides each other and that they would support each other in those interests. And um, education and debate and discussion was very highly valued. Um, we don't tend to think of Victorian society like that, but it was something that was emerging at the time. And um, it, you can see it very much reflected in um, Virginia and Francis's marriage, if for no other reason than Francis put um, all of his assets in a trust and gave them to Virginia, um, they, which gave her unprecedented rights of uh, buying and selling property of inheritance, things that women didn't necessarily have at the time. Um, but because he was a lawyer, he knew all of the loopholes and he basically took on himself the typical female role and gave her the power that he would typically have. And that was the beginning of at the beginning of their marriage. So he wanted them to be as equal as possible from the get go. 
before all of this other stuff even started. So it, it's a very unique situation, right? It is. It is. So they're, they're a wealthy family. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about their where their wealth came from and educational background and sure. and then of course slave ownership. Yes, yes, they were from slave owning families. Um, interesting thing is that we don't have any record of Virginia and Francis ever owning, purchasing any kind anything to do with slaves. We know they were very much um, abolitionists. They very early on joined different abolition societies, um, and. Even though they grew up in that world, you know, there's there's no way of knowing what made them have a different opinion than their family. I mean, there could be something that they saw or, you know, at some point um, that they didn't like. It could have been a moral thing because of their religion. Um, they were um, Episcopalian, I believe. Um, and they that was part of the religion to head toward abolition rather than um, being in favor of slave ownership justified by religion, um, they did come from wealth, um, more, Francis more than Virginia. Virginia's family had wealth, but then her father fell on hard times. And so that kind of eliminated a lot of of, of what she would have possibly inherited. Um, Francis inherited his money through, unfortunately, a lot of deaths of his family. Um, he was a wealthy man by the time he went to college because of money that he inherited. The family overall um, were what they call Tidewater planters, which basically means that they were the nobility of that area in Virginia. Money came from tobacco farming, um, which was very, very popular, um, netted a lot of money in trade. Um, family originally came, they were Dutch, so they came from, from Europe and within a couple of generations really established a foothold in the tobacco growing industry, which was very... Um, uh, very risky because you know one wrong thing an entire crop could be gone for a year so um but because of everything that their ancestors did they were able to use that money they were very fortunate that regardless of what happened to them specifically they had that inheritance to fund later on the women's suffrage movement i don't know if francis would have been willing to take the risk of his career his reputation um, and everything with going as far as the Supreme Court in favor of women's rights if they didn't have that um, cushion in the background. Mm -hmm. And then they, they relocate to Missouri. Yes. Yeah, they spent, um, after they got married, they spent about three years in Holly Springs, Mississippi, uh, which is where his eldest brother was. His brother was a lawyer as well. We don't have very many records because they were destroyed during the Civil War. But um, it's believed that um, Francis probably got his 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 foothold in the legal career through his brother. Um, the interesting thing is that they were exactly the opposite politically. So it would have been uh, the, the the Thanksgiving dinner table would have been interesting. I I think um, we don't know why they came to St. Louis specifically, but there were miners already in St. Louis, so they were probably invited um, and just felt like okay, let's do a, a change of pace. Yeah, and, and I guess like so many families that lived in that region during the uh, during the Civil War, you know, they were Confederates and Unionists on both sides. Yeah, it seems yeah. to be very really from you know it seems rather a common occurrence. Yeah, it was um, the minor family that stayed in Virginia were obviously Confederates. Um, they we have we have a journal um, from one of I believe Francis's cousins 
um, talking about how when the Yankees came through and and how they you know raided the house and oh she couldn't believe she had to cook for them and I mean her outrage is palpable. And then you have Virginia and Francis on the other side of things in St. Louis who were very much unionists and um, doing everything they could um, to to help that side. Virginia um, worked with the Western Sanitary Commission, which was a um, a health organization, basically. And um, that organization actually made St. Louis the biggest um, aid area in the Mississippi Valley. And um, she specifically um, helped at Benton Barracks, which is less famous than Jefferson Barracks, but it was closer to her home. And um, there was actually a large contingent of black soldiers there and um, also refugees um, and runaway slaves. And um, because she was an abolitionist, chances were good that she helped with that contingent before they were able to organize enough to do things on their own. She just she had a very large estate that was three miles away. So we have record of her actually taking things from her larder, um, berries from her her orchard and and fruit and and taking it to um, the the barracks and supplementing the commissary there, um, which was a huge help because you know supplies don't travel well during war. So um, you know women like her who could you know just be of help in what feels like such a simple way made such a large impact. Sure, and and. Did she do nursing too of the uh, of the injured, or do you think it was more of donations and just she being... wasn't officially trained, um, so I don't know that it was nursing as we think of it. But they needed anybody that they could to kind of be a companion to the soldiers convalescing. You know, they would pray with them because there were no official ministers. Um, they would bring them supplies, help them send letters, you know, and even just talk to them. You know, it's it's when you're laying there, I would imagine for three months or so, you know, dealing with major injuries, any kind of distraction would be welcome. Right. Let's talk a little bit about Virginia and her relationship with the leaders of the suffrage movement. I found that to be really interesting. Yeah. And um, so Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton called Virginia Minor, quote, a dove with an eagle's heart. Yeah. So what do you think that means about her and how does she, you know, if you know how she, how they met um, or what their relationship was like, that would be, it would be really interesting to know. Sure. Um, the Dove with the Eagle's Heart is actually referring to outwardly, Virginia was this very genteel Southern woman, you know, basically what you would, what, the, the stereotype that you would expect. She was soft-spoken, but well-spoken. She was polite. Um, she didn't have any of the radical tendencies that some of the other women who got perhaps more attention in the suffrage movement, like Victoria Woodhull, um, uh, had. And she didn't offend people. She, I believe, very purposefully wanted to show that you could be a woman, you could be a lady and still fight for women's rights. You didn't have to go and pretend to be like a man or adopt you know, things that were counter-cultural um, in order to get attention. And the eagle's heart part, I think, refers to her absolute tenacity, her willingness to speak publicly, um, speak loudly, um, voice opinions that were not, weren't necessarily popular. Um, she, and, and she never let anything stop her. You know, she knew the negative publicity that was out there. She knew what people were saying. And she believed so strongly 
in the concept of women being able to vote that she was willing to go forward anyway, regardless of what happened. I mean, she lost in the Supreme Court and she didn't just go home and be like, okay, well, that didn't work. You know, she picked up other things like um, she joined the tax revolt movement, um, wherein women believed that because they couldn't uh, vote for their representatives, they were being taxed without representation. And she very publicly wrote um, in the paper to the city assessor and said, you know, can you tell me how many women that we have who own property, you know, in the St. Louis area? And it came out to the equivalent nowadays of several million dollars. If those women withheld their taxes, that would be a huge uh, blow to the city. So, you know, she wasn't the first woman to do that, but she was the first one to really make it part of the official suffrage movement. Um, and it was it was very, very risky. Um, we're- but a very smart strategy. I mean, you know, it's, uh, you know, understanding that how do you make change? How do you make change? And, and that was a huge part of after their court case, she wanted to make sure that the women's rights movement, um, women's suffrage movement stayed in the public mind. And in order to do that, you know, you have to do things that get attention. And so that was one of the things that she did. She campaigned all over the country. Um, and and Susan, going back to her relationship with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they traveled a lot um, during this time. They were speaking in different areas. Their convention um, was for women's rights was in a different place every year. And St. Louis was a very, very important city, um, probably the third or fourth most important city in the country. And... So it was natural that she would come through there uh, from, they would come through there from time to time. And we know that um, at some point, not exactly how, uh, Virginia and and Susan met, became very, very good friends to the point where every time Susan was in town, they would would take her around and say, hey, you know, we've got new innovations in roads here, you know, come see how cool the road is. And, you know, they had her for Thanksgiving dinner one year um, she would stay with them Um, they hosted parties so that she would um, get to know the elite of st louis Uh, they were very very close and my one of my favorite stories is when she traveled to nebraska um to stump for women's suffrage with susan b anthony they you couldn't make up the things that they went through and this all came from an interview that virginia gave to the st louis post dispatch so we know it was true with her exact words um, they survived a tornado. Uh, Virginia fell out of the carriage at one point and almost broke her ankle. That's actually what forced her to come back. Um, they were invited to speak at what was called at the time a lunatic asylum um, to a group of, of women. Um, the interesting thing was that Virginia had a complete opposite experience of what Nellie Bly had. Um, she was amazed at how well these women were treated. Um, so looking at that aspect, there is a counterpoint to the um, abuses that Nellie Bly very rightfully exposed. Um, but they spoke, and at the very end, every time that they spoke, whether it was a schoolhouse or wherever, they took a vote from the audience as to whether they believed that women should get the right to vote. Every single one of those women, even though they were basically incarcerated, said that women should have the right to vote. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So... You write that the Civil War forever changed the miners. So how did the war impact them? You've talked a little bit about the, you know, the work with the uh, benevolent associations and things. So 
How did the war kind of change the trajectory of their activism? Yeah, for for Virginia, it was definitely that she had had this passion. She had had this thing that she could go and do. And then so many women across the country had the same experience where afterwards they were just expected to go back to their docile lives as wives and mothers and kind of basically forget that they that they were ever able to do more. Um, and Virginia channeled that along with um, her grief at the loss of her son into um, fighting for women's rights. And that was really the catalyst for her to um, found the Women's Suffrage Association of Missouri. Um, for Francis, it's interesting that he did two things in the Civil War that, that I was able to find. Um, he was an enlistment officer, and then he also did um, war claims um, as a lawyer. Basically, what war claims were is um, anyone who was injured or the families of those who died were able to say to the government, hey, you owe me, you know, X amount of money for what I've been through. And even in some cases when soldiers had to use their own horses, their own supplies, things like that, they were able to make a claim as well. And you really needed someone in that middle role that Francis um, filled because typical government, there was a lot of red tape. It would have been very difficult for your average person, especially when back then when most people weren't literate, to be able to get the documents that were needed. All of those things that Francis did, he was later then able to take and translate into his own personal career. Um, he worked on a lot of um, uh, land. He did speculating in land. Um, he um, did very similar things to war claims in other areas later on. So it really helped train him and fuel his career, which because of his career, he was then able to help Virginia. Mm -hmm. Wow. And after the war, they develop a new strategy to argue for women's suffrage. So that's sort of the, you know, this is the the big, the big moment, right? So yeah. um, can you talk a little bit about what the new strategy that they develop is and what, how did they decide to act on it? Yeah. Uh, they came up with uh, what is now called the New Departure, and it's called that because it was so radically different from anything else that had been uh, any other strategies that had been used in the women's uh, suffrage movement at the time. And basically what it says is that the 14th Amendment already gave women the right to vote. And the, the logic behind that is that it uses gender neutral language. It doesn't say men or males. It says persons and people. So, um, you know, they believed that, that women were included in that. And um, when the Women's Rights Convention was in St. Louis in 1869, um, Virginia actually made that public for the first time and said, you know, this is the idea we're working under. We urge you um, to go out, spread, the, spread this message. And if you're a woman, attempt to register, attempt to vote. You know, this is your right. Tell them that this demand, demand the rights you're already given, basically. And Virginia not only um, talked about it, but she did it. She um, attempted, it was just 150 years ago, last October, um, she actually attempted to register to vote in St. Louis. And um, her, the registrar there was Reese Happerset. And he basically said, look, I can't let you register. You know, Missouri law, the Constitution says only men can vote. And, you know, we don't know what their conversation was. Knowing Virginia, it was probably a pretty polite debate because she was smart as a whip. Um, but I think they knew going in that that was probably going to be the case. And I, in some ways, they probably hoped that would be the case. 
because then that gave them an excuse to then go sue uh, Freeze Happerset for $10,000 um, for not allowing Virginia to vote. They took that um, to the Missouri, the Missouri Cir bleh, Circuit Court. Um, I'm sorry, St. Louis Circuit Court, uh, where, you know, they were summarily denied. The judge was like, whatever. They appealed to the Missouri Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court was so sure in their um, their belief that the miners were crazy that they didn't even mount a defense. Um, you know, it just it was a foregone conclusion that they were going to lose. But that then gave them the opportunity to do something that nobody else did in the history of the women's movement, and that is take the issue of women's suffrage to the Supreme Court in the case Minor versus Happerset. So, you know, in some ways it was bad because they lost, but in other ways it was good because it just it gave them more and more rising opportunity. And with that opportunity came publicity. And that court case basically took the issue of women's suffrage out of just the women's circles, the political circles, and into people's homes because it was covered so much in the paper. So without that case, the average person may not have known, at least not for another decade or so, um, about the fact that women were fighting. And when women found out, especially in far-flung far places, they were then able to do their own uh, their own thing and become part of the movement. So what happened in the Supreme Court? <laughs> um, it, was, it, it was a pretty long uh, trial and very intricate um, discussions. Basically, we talked a little bit about um, how Francis... You know, he, he kept with the idea that the 14th Amendment gave women the right to vote, but he argued states' rights, rights versus um, federal rights. And he was basically arguing that, you know, the, the, the I can't think of the name of it right now, there's a clause um, in the 14th Amendment that um, basically argues that states' rights are one thing, but federal rights are something separate. And he was saying that federal rights were actually a good thing versus just relying on your individual state. Um, the most controversial thing he argued was that women uh, were actually included in the 13th Amendment, which read the slaves, because women were in a condition of servitude. Um, there was, at the time, a system called coverature um, that was left over from when America was an English colony that said when a woman was born, she was legally covered by her father. So he had he basically retained all of her rights. She had none. And then when she got married, that coverage went to her husband. So her husband had the right to take any wages that she earned. He could even take her children away to where she could never see them again. Um, it technically wasn't illegal for him, for a husband to sell his wife into slavery. Um, I don't think that happened very often, but, you know, it, it was there. So women were in such a confined role that he was saying that they were akin to slaves. Now, a lot of the newspapers and even some of the judges were like, okay, that's a step too far. You know, I, I that, no. But a lot of women were like, yeah, that's, exa that's exactly how we feel. So the fact that they even were courageous enough to say that was huge. Um, so they made their argument and um, the Supreme Court came back uh, a while later because they don't make their, even now, they don't make their decisions quickly. And uh, basically said, you know, we've, we've heard your case, but, you know, we're, we're fighting against you. Um, the big thing that they did say, though, for the first time was that women were citizens. 
was that was huge because there was no actual definition of citizenship before this court case and women weren't considered citizens. Um, now they were a special class of citizen um, that was, you know, lower than um, male citizens until the 19th Amendment gave them the right to vote. But it was still big. Um, and between that and the attention that it drew, um, it was actually a very important loss, if, if that makes any sense. Um, it also unified. There were two uh, branches of the suffrage movement at that point. The American Women's Suffrage Association, started by Lucy Stone, which was the more conservative branch. They were fighting for a state-by-state -state strategy, the one our Francis was arguing against, um, for women's suffrage. And then there was the National Women's Suffrage Association, headed by Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. That was the more radical side. That was the side that Virginia favored, which isn't a huge surprise. Um, they were um, arguing for a federal decision. Well, because of the Supreme Court decision, that put an end to that federal idea. So they went, okay, fine, we have to swallow our pride, and we're going to have to go with the um, the American Women's Suffrage Association um, solution of state by state. So that was a big step in reuniting those two organizations. Um, I believe it was 1890 when they officially re, uh, reunited in the National American Women's Suffrage Association. Um, and that may sound like a small thing, but if you think about any movement, when you're splintered into multiple groups, you're not as effective. So the fact that they were able to come back together um, was a really big and really powerful moment uh, because then they could pool their resources from then on. I mean, it was still another 30 years before women got the right to vote and there were ups and downs and all that stuff, but at least they were together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the the case is is really an important step, you know, and especially when you look at it in, in context of the whole suffrage movement, that in the suffrage movement, you know, there's all these different stages and and things that build up to the success eventually in the 20th century. And I think that Minor versus Hefferset really is an important step um, that um, I think you mentioned earlier, you know, that she was really the right person to do this test case. And so could you mention a little bit about that? You know, why why was Virginia Minor a better test case candidate than somebody like Victoria Woodhull? I, I think Virginia was better because she commanded respectability. Um, she, it, in her comportment, in the way she spoke, um, in her interactions with everybody, she people were able to take her a lot more seriously. I mean, as much as anybody took a woman seriously in those days who was willing to speak out. Um, women like Victoria Woodhull for all of their publicity seeking antics, you know, whether it was wearing pants or cutting their hair short or or whatever, they were seen as because they were so radical, they were seen as disrespectful, um, a lower class. A, a, they were more equated to actresses and prostitutes, really, than as respectable women. And Virginia really wanted to show that, you know, she was a lady. She was the, in a lot of ways, because of the court case, the embodiment of Americana, of all of the women in the United States. And she had education. She had class. She had style. You know, she was kind of to make a comparison, the Jackie Kennedy 
you know, of of her time. And, you know, rather than being like a Kim Kardashian or somebody like that um, nowadays, who's looked at a lot differently and judged a lot differently. That's that's not to say that Virginia wasn't judged harshly because she was. Um, there were some truly, truly nasty newspaper articles written. Um, and I think she had to learn just not to take them to heart. Um, but she was at least able to put a good face on the suffrage movement. Yeah, she really, um, she certainly endured those slings and arrows Definitely. with a lot of grace. Yes. Now, in private, who knows what she said? Because she was definitely, she was fiery. Yeah. It's not that she was, you know, necessarily docile or anything like that. Were you able to find letters that she wrote to people? A handful. Um, we have one letter between her and Susan B. Anthony. Uh, we have one with her and one of her relatives. I think he was a nephew. And um, a handful of others that had to do with the the suffrage movement. And uh, one actually that was preserved, Francis actually preserved it, was a letter of um, fundraising for the Western Sanitary Commission. That she basically said, you know, hey, would you be willing, we're having this bizarre uh, would you be willing to donate either money or flowers? You know, um, I guess they were selling the flowers. And uh, she says, so far, I haven't had any uh, anybody turn me down. So it was like there's that pressure tactic of don't be the first one. You know, um, you know, here's how you can do it. It's it's her, her letters are very um, you can tell that she had a great education. They're very eloquent. Um, even the more informal one to her nephew, where she complains about um, they were renting property out to someone and their tenants were were not well-behaved tenants. And she was just basically saying, oh, you know, I basically I rue the day that, you know, we let these people in. This is what we're going to do. But it was it was still done in a in a respectful way. Oh, gosh. Yeah. This book really adds something to the suffrage story. So I hope you really everybody listening takes a a look at the book, Americans, America's Forgotten Suffragists, Virginia and Francis Minor. Thank you so much, Nicole, for joining me on the show today. I really enjoyed the discussion. It's it's really an important book for including uh, really innovative thinkers into the suffrage movement's strategy and their story. So I really encourage everyone to take a look at this book, America's Forgotten Suffragists, Virginia and Francis Minor, published by Two Dot, an imprint of Globe Pequot, a trade division of Roman and Littlefield Publishing Group. Until next time on New Books and Women's History, this is Jane Semeca. Keep reading.